Good evening. There's a different feel when we're here in the evening, isn't there? I don't know about you, but it's different. Uh, it's quite surreal for me to be here this evening. Uh, the first time I actually preached to Cornerstone was on a Good Friday three years ago. And I don't know if you remember that. It was also the peak of the pandemic. And uh, it was also really the inception of our backdrop that you see here before this. We had two ferns. I can say this is a definitely a better upgrade. Um, but I remember we had a camera right in the middle, and there was nine of us in the sanctuary, and the rest of you guys were home. And uh, the genuine question that I had to ask was, where do I look? Do I look at you guys? Do I look at the camera? And so when we started, I just locked gaze with this camera, and I didn't take my eyes off of it. I was so nervous. Uh, I, I can say I'm a little less nervous this evening, but uh, if we could just pray and get our evening started with our message. Father, I'm in great need of your power and your love this evening. But aren't we all? We always need it. It's not just for special occasions. It's not just for Sundays. But it is every day, isn't it? We ask that you remind us of the importance of this day. We ask that you remind us of what you did 2,000 years ago when you took up your cross and you were crucified upon it. May that truth ring true for us, deep in the reaches of our hearts, deep in our minds. For some of us this evening, it may be a time for us to repent and to turn back to the Lord truly. So we ask you, Father, speak through this time. Let it not be me. We pray this on your name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Some context for what's going on. This is Good Friday morning. The very first one. Jesus has spent the previous night being betrayed by those men closest to him. You know what he does in retaliation? He stays up all night, and he prays for them. You talk about having a sleepless night. This was the most sleepless of all nights. And Judas gives him over to the Roman soldiers, and he goes from mistrial to mistrial to mistrial. And all of this is leading to the tension, leading to his death of crucifixion. And it says they took him, and they flogged him. And they twisted on his head a crown of thorns. And they struck him. And they mocked him, sailing, Hail, King of the Jews. And Pilate, after much deliberation, finds that he is innocent. Of course he's innocent. He is without sin. So he brings them in front of the crowd and says, Behold, your king. And he seeks to release him, but they... Say, if you release him, you are not a friend of Caesar. How deeply manipulative it was for them to say such a thing because they know he cannot afford to make a mistake under his boss, Caesar. And so Pilate takes his judgment seat and says, 
here is your king. What shall I do with him? And they say, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And then he asks, shall I crucify your king? And now Pilate must oblige because they now hail their true king, Caesar. The title of today's word is the undesirable king. I will venture to say people don't really want Jesus to be the Lord and king of their lives. I owe much to spiritual fathers from afar, one in particular. He holds a conference every year in Florida, and one stood out to me in 2007. He was on the preaching docket, and he talked about faith and apologetics. I know him as Robert Charles. You may know him as Dr. R.C. Sproul. And he's going midway through his message, and he's speaking about how to have genuine saving faith. And he gives an illustration with a chair. And there's two men conversing, and he says, sir, do you see this chair right before you? And the man looks at it and says, yes, I see that there is a chair. And then he asks him, do you believe that if you sit in this chair, it will support your weight? And the other man examines it, looks at it, and says, yeah, I think it should support my weight if I sit on it. And then he asks, was it supporting you right now? And he says, well, no. And he says, why not? Because I'm not sitting in it. And here was Dr. Sproul's point. We may say we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We may say that we believe he can save us from our sins, but we aren't really trusting in it now, are we? We're not sitting in the chair. And so for those of us who are very forward-thinking, we think the problem is solved. It's very easy. Just sit in the chair. Let's just get people to sit in this chair. How hard is it just to trust in God and to believe? Not as easy as it sounds, is it? Because we can have an incomplete view of saving faith. For a grave misconception can happen when we choose to sit in this chair begrudgingly. I don't sit in this chair because I want to. I sit in this chair because I have to. That's how I was growing up. That's how I was raised by my parents to be at church. Or I come to church because my friends are there. Or I sit on this chair in order to avoid the fire of hell, this chair is just a means to an end. But how I honestly feel about this chair is that it's quite ugly, it's quite uncomfortable, and it's undesirable. I am called to love this chair, but I don't really like this chair. Hold this thought. We'll get back to this chair, I promise. I have a major task this evening, and it is that you've heard me speak with three points. You've heard me speak with two points. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I have 
one point, and it is this. The undesirable king died for our sins in order to be our chief desire. The undesirable king died for our sins, yours and mine, in order to be our chief desire. You see, those that were around the time of Jesus during this account faced the fear of death. And so what did they do? Did they stay by his side? No, they ran away. They denied that they ever knew him, that they ever had an associate with him in order to preserve their lives. Or in one man's case, make, maybe make a spare change or 30 shekels of silver if they gave him up. You could say they struggled with the inconvenience of professing Jesus as Lord and King. And afterwards, the Jewish Christians of that time struggled with the same question. What is more convenient for us to say that Jesus is Christ and to face Roman persecution or to deny that we know him and live under the protection of Caesar? Not much changes 2,000 years later, approximately, because we may have advanced in technology, we have advanced in our ways of living, but what is still in the heart of man is exactly the same. You could say the dilemma that is almost worse for us is this form of compromise. What is the most convenient way that I can claim to have faith in Jesus, but yet still live the life I want to live. I grew up in church. This is all I know. And I don't want to give up the title that I am a Christian. So I will keep one foot in the church, but the other foot in the world. So you know what happens? You look for the Jesus which fits your preference. You look for the Jesus which fits your autonomy, which gives you the most freedom. But if we venture enough down that road, and I've seen it happen enough, we will toss Jesus aside. And we will opt for the same ruler that we shared in the Garden of Eden to today. That is me. We may say with our lips that we love God and we want him to be king, but what is preferential deep down inside of our hearts is it's all about me. I am the king of my own throne. I am the captain of my own ship. And no one else takes that place. No one else tells me otherwise. In 2 Timothy, it talks about this. For people will be lovers of self. We could probably just stop there, can't we? How indicative it is of our generation. But he doesn't just stop there. He said, we will be lovers of self. We will be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good. 
It's funny, when you're most tired, when you're most irritable, when you're most hungry, we opt for the same ruler that we share. Who is the king? Sisters, I didn't want to leave you out. Who is the queen? It's me. I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, now. There is no room for two kings. And much like Pilate, we take this judgment seat and we choose to judge the only one who can judge the whole world. And not only Pilate, but pay attention to what happens just five days earlier. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a colt and on a donkey. What a humble king. And the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when it is asked of them who this is, they say, this is the prophet Jesus. And you don't even have to give them a week later, for they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. As one commentator puts it, they spoke with cynical expediency. Unbeknownst to them, they were saying in their hearts, their real desire, away with Jesus, give us Caesar. When that Caesar's dead, give us another and another and another, whoever we want to be in charge, whoever we find to be the most convenient. And not only them, what the high priests do is commit blasphemy because what they were supposed to say to Pilate is, we have no king but God. But they do not say this because for them, there is no God. And Jesus, they put to death. And beloved, Jesus is somebody we put to death every day, for we grieve his Holy Spirit. I have grown up and lived in Northern Virginia enough to say with some confidence, Jesus is not really somebody we want to be the Lord and King over our lives. Why? It's just so darn inconvenient. We want to have autonomy. We want to be charge. And don't mistake me in saying it's not the over wrongdoing that you do, but it is the subtle indifference that you have with your intentions and with your thoughts. Living in daily repentance, praying, reading your Bible, oh, that just takes too much effort and energy. Serving in the church takes too much of my time. Living in sexual purity, that's just too archaic. You got to get with the times. Don't you see how our culture defines gender and sexuality now? Speaking out of the injustices in our world, we're supposed to be nice and kind. We're not supposed to be controversial. Preventing slanderous speech. Oh, I love to gossip. That just seems too legalistic. Sacrificing our comforts, that just induces too much stress in my life. Tithing all of our money, oh, I don't want to give up my savings. 
enduring suffering, every reason to grow bitter in life, loving and forgiving our enemies. That's unrealistic. I'm justified in my anger because vengeance is mine. Letting go of my pride. It's really hard to be humble. No one can be humble, so I don't think we should do such a thing. But let me at the bare minimum pray before my meals. That's good enough for my conscience. But before I do, let me take a picture of myself on social media and post it so that people can still see I identify as a Christian. Ten out of the richest counties in the United States of America. And do you know who has four of them? Not the state of Virginia. Northern Virginia. You may not pick up on this, but every day you have conversations with your family and with your friends and with the things that you see on social media and what is asked of us each and every day is how can we further enhance, enrich our lives? New things to buy, new experiences to accumulate, new trips to adventure on, an endless amount of Amazon packages at our door, and our attitude is, give me more. Give me more. Do you know how to figure out if you don't really need something? A very practical solution is when you got to move, and you look at all the stuff that you have, and half of it you give away, or you throw away, and you look at it and say, why did I even buy this? I don't even use this. But at one point, you desperately wanted that thing. I just came back from a trip, and I'm going to go on another trip next week because I want to travel the world. I want to taste. I want to enjoy. I want to experience. Great. All power to you. Nothing wrong with that. Can you go on this mission trip coming up? I, I'm busy. Someone else can go, though. You know how to figure out if somebody really loves something? You maybe mention it in passing, or you ask them one question about it, and they will talk about it so passionately, so effortlessly, with such flow, with such enthusiasm. But as soon as you bring up faith and God, people clam up real quick and don't have much to say. The worst part about it is we normalize this. Jesus, we put to death every day. And our attitude is, yep, that's normal. Welcome to life in Northern Virginia. So now what? Well, after today's service, you can leave the sanctuary and live in ignorant bliss and continue to live in your state of normal, or you can choose not to live normally anymore. And if you choose not to live normally anymore, I really... I really have bad news. 
because our hearts have really become so hardened that we cannot change. You know what the worst part is? And to be completely honest with you, you don't really want to change. You may have worked so hard to gain whatever you have in your life, and you can't let it go. God is telling you, loosen your grip, but you're like, no, it's mine. It's mine. My precious. But do you know the amazing thing? There's a reason why Friday is so good. I have good news. And it is that Jesus knows exactly what is in your heart. And he responds to this by doing what? Our key verse in verse 14. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. What is really so significant about this day and this time? Well, it's Friday. and It's around noon. And this was the time when the sacrificial lambs were slain. And what is truly remarkable and unprecedented about this occasion is that the night before, on Thursday night, when Jesus has this meal, the Last Supper with his 12 disciples, this was the Passover meal. And as we know, we're about to take communion. They had bread and they had wine. But where was the main course? For there was no lamb. Or was there? Brothers and sisters, there was a lamb like none before. This was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Way back in Genesis 22, as God has commissioned Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, his one and only son. And they're walking up the mountain together, and poor Isaac is holding the firewood on which he will be sacrificed on, unbeknownst to him. And he calls out to his father, Father, and Abraham responds, here I am, my son. Behold the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? And Abraham providentially says to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. Later in Isaiah, it said he had no beauty or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing that we should desire him. And yet he not opened his mouth. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. And like a lamb led to the slaughter. Who was the lamb that took away the sin of the world? He was. Who was the lamb that God provided to Abraham? He was. Who was the lamb that we did not want, but who was led to his slaughter? He was. Jesus Christ died for my sin while I still didn't want him. What does that say about God? 
that he wanted me and that he wanted you. And that his desire for us is stronger than our lack of desire for him. And his death saves me. It gives me new life. And it puts to death my old hardened heart so that I can trust in him again and know and receive the riches of his grace and the benefits of my salvation. And there are many benefits of our salvation, but the greatest is the chief desire, which is God himself. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But I love how one speaker changes that and to abide. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And he references from one of my favorite verses, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I told you we would get back to this chair. Thank you for holding that thought. R.C. Sproul said, you sit in it, you believe it, you trust it. Then he left. And another great spiritual father from afar goes by the name John Piper. said, I love what R.C. said. In the middle of his sermon, he went off on a little tangent. He said, I have no qualms about what he said. I agree. I attest to what he said. I, let me just add on, actually. Let me clarify with what he said. Okay, you sit in it, you believe it, you trust it. But what if I don't really like it that much? What if I find it quite ugly, quite uncomfortable, quite undesirable? Then what? Well, then you're missing the point. Because to sit in this chair is not to see this chair as a means to an end. This is the means. This is the end. I am to love the chair Glorify the chair, magnify the chair, give the chair what it is due, speak to this chair, wanting to spend eternity with this chair, and find that my eyes will not gaze upon anything else more beautiful than this chair. I love this chair. I love it. And after he had done speaking, he had to catch a plane home. But before he did, R.C. Sproul took him by the arm, whispered his thanks to him, and said, I love the chair. There are moments where this is so distinct for me. African believers leaving their Muslim families, knowing that they will disown them forever but holding hands as they walk into the sea to be baptized, saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. It comes when a man is in a colony of lepers and he has no legs, he has no crutches, but is crawling on his hands and on his arms to a prayer meeting at 4 a.m. because he in his mind, he says, I cannot start the day without the Lord Jesus. It comes in the middle of a war zone when a pastor says, this is Sunday, I'm going to open the doors to our church and we're going to have service. It comes when a grandmother is on her deathbed and with her last word 
has every right to say to her grandson, pity me, look at the life that I live. I just want you to live a good and happy life. That's not what she said. She said, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thanks be to God. It comes when an unrepentant, bitter young believer is alone in his apartment room in Richmond and has a guitar and has an old praise binder and stumbles upon the song. As the deer pants forth for water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. And it took this brother 15 minutes just to get through the next lines because he's just weeping because the words are finally coming to life for him. You're my friend. You are my brother, even though you are my king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. It's funny when he becomes your chief desire, your life changes forever. You want to figure out if somebody loves something, they find that they can't stop thinking about him talking about him. He is the greatest treasure that these eyes will ever see. And to the world, this relationship, it looks strange. It looks weird. It looks abnormal. Because living in daily repentance, reading and praying your Bible, I don't have enough time in the day, but I will make time for it because it's so sweet. Serving in church, I'm already doing it. I love it, and I wish I could do more. Living in sexual purity, absolutely, without question. I don't want to sear my conscience. Speaking out of the injustices in our world, I am called to be a light in the darkness. Preventing slanderous speech, I love encouraging behind people's backs and in front of them, too. Sacrificing our comforts, of course, for they only last but a moment. Tithing our money, I wish I could give it all. Enduring suffering, I count it all joy. Loving and forgiving our enemies. How else is the world going to see that Jesus is real? And letting go of my pride, of course, there's only one king, and his name is Jesus Christ. Leaving the comforts of Northern Virginia and living the life of a missionary, deeply proclaiming, I never made a sacrifice because making Jesus known and knowing him is far 
sweeter. He is my most desirable king. And when this becomes your new normal, man, watch out, world. Imagine we have so many homegrown seminarians, worship leaders, talented people, interns, but I can't wait for the day when we send out our first homegrown missionary. They will say deep in their hearts, I never made a sacrifice. Making Jesus known is far sweeter. And amongst all of these things that are happening for our church, our collective attitude is, yeah, this is normal. This is how we shine in Northern Virginia. So I humbly ask you, can we live in this type of normal? As we go into our time of communion, maybe it is a time for us not to confess our sins necessarily or our wrongdoings, but loving other things more than Jesus. I invite you to take this time to reflect upon your own heart. So let's do this together. Pastor Andrew for uh, sharing us the, the word where Christ would become our greatest desire and pray that this will continue to be the strive in our ministry and in our church where we can see our lives really transformed as we see more and more of Jesus in our lives or, and, and Christ becoming that great desire in our lives. As we go into the time of communion, I want to help us reflect by reminding us the words that Jesus shared when he uh, began his sermon on the mountain, he started with the Beatitudes, which are the state of supreme happiness. He would say, blessed or, or supremely happy are, are those, are you who are poor in spirit? Supremely happy are you who mourn? Supremely happy are you who are gentle? For those of you who hunger and thirst, for those of you who are merciful, for those of you who are pure in heart, supremely happy are you for those who are peacemakers, for those who are persecuted for living in the right way. Happy are you for those when people revile you and falsely accuse you of all kinds of evil things. So we see that the state of happiness is not due to the state of the person, but really the assuring promise that comes as we're in those states. 
the, in, within the context of communion this evening, I want to focus on the fourth beatitude where Jesus tells his followers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So it's not in the state of being hungry and thirsty that makes us supremely happy, knowing, but, but it's knowing that in such a state, there is the assurance of satisfaction. Throughout this week, our church we, we created a chain of, of fasting and praying. And, and while I don't see fasting as important as praying, reading the Bible, and joining in fellowship with fellow believers, it is a discipline that helps us understand longing and being in anguish. Because sometimes, because we are living in a country that is so prosperous, I think it's easy for us to forget what it feels like to truly hunger and thirst for something. And fasting can help us remember what it's like to truly lack something that we really need. How our stomach twists and growls, and we just long to have a taste of something to satisfy. And like the way our body reacts when we don't have food or drink, we're to take that experience and transfer it to longing for God. Just like what Pastor Andrew shared in the, the psalmist, um, he, he, he looked upon nature and saw a deer by the water and drinking with enormous thirst and saying, 